Welcome to Mind Pilot. This is Dr. Jana Price Sharps, and we are here with Dr. Matthew Sharps. Today, our topic is dissociation. So, I, in my mind, have a definition of dissociation or can describe it, I guess I should say. Dr. Sharps, could you give us an idea of how a cognitive scientist sees dissociation? Yes, it could take several days and cost a tremendous amount of pain to do this because there's different uses of the word. We're not talking here about dissociative identity disorder. Dissociation, since we're talking about, is where the world may may start to feel unreal, that ethereal possibilities seem to be available to you. Um... You couldn't really call this dissociation, but a similar state can be had when you're just waking up out of sleep and you're not quite sure if the last dream was real. You might wake up thinking you had to pay a large bill and, oh my gosh, I got to pay that bill. Oh no, I don't. That was in a dream. Um, some of our, the first responder listeners will have to live, live in many different places. You know, they travel a great deal. Well, hotels are pretty much the same, whether you're in Cairo, Egypt, or Cairo, Illinois, or at the same damn place. Well, you may, many of the, many of the listeners will have had this experience where you wake up in a hotel room and going, where the hell am I? And that, there's certainly nothing crazy there. It's just there are a few moments there. You're not quite clear. And the world seems a little bit ethereal before you realize, oh my goodness, I'm, you know, wherever I am, Hanford, California, or whatever. Right? So now that's not true dissociation, but it's a similar feeling there. If you're thinking so deeply about something, you miss your turn. We often see that as an example of something very much akin to a dissociative process. But one thing we do know, and there's a lot of good study on this, is that people may tend more or less toward those dissociative tendencies. Now, another thing we know from the work of a number of psychologists, including Art Wall and her colleagues, uh, Colonel, Colonel Grossman and his colleagues, we know also that even in people who are not prone to dissociation, and first responders generally are not, under high stress, anybody can enter a relatively dissociative state. And this has profound effects for your, for your cognition. Absolutely. When I think of dissociation, I think of a disconnect from your reality. So the over the many years I've worked with first responders that have PTSD, they'll describe it as they feel like they're not connected with their life. They don't feel anything. They look at their family, but they feel numb. There's kind of a numbing sensation, uh, feeling like time is going by, but they're not attached to it. It's almost like watching your life on the TV screen. Very similar to what people have, uh, the reaction people have when they've just gone through a really bad car accident or something, and you know, and they feel like it's very surreal. Um, that's kind of the wording that a lot of my first responders have used with uh, their description of dissociation. Yes, and that surre- the feelings of the world as surreal are almost a hallmark of dissociation, yes. So what are, what are some things that can cause dissociation? Well, under high levels of stress, we see this as a moderately likely thing to happen as a result of the fight-or-flight process. And obviously, the longer that goes on, the more likely we are to see these symptoms on a regular basis. Okay. 
So does dissociation influence everybody, or is it just first responders and people with DID? Or No, DID, we're not entirely clear about the relationship of what we're talking about here in DID, dissociative identity disorder. No, it can affect anyone. Okay, And the work of Art Wall and others indicates very strongly that it's a moderately likely thing to happen to first responders under extreme stress. And it will change our cognition quite a bit. Um, my own laboratory, we've spent quite a bit of time studying not Bigfoot and the UFOs because we start from the assumption that these things actually don't exist. I mean, there are lots of things in the sky that you can't identify, but no, they're not spaceships. But the point being, uh, we don't study these things. We study why people believe in them. A study we did years ago, we found that people who tend to be depressed tended to believe in space aliens and ghosts. Why? Because it indicates you know, the aliens might take you someplace nice and the ghosts might be a nice afterlife where things would be better. Um, people with tendencies toward attention deficit hyperactive disorder, you don't have to have the full-blown disorder, you can have tendencies toward it. They didn't give a damn about the aliens, but they did care about the spaceships. They liked spaceships, they wanted, they believed in the spaceships, and they believed in Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster because these things are cool. It'd be great to have big apes running around the woods or dinosaurs in Loch Ness. The coolest thing would be, you know, a Bigfoot flying a UFO, you know, um... So we see then psychological states changing belief systems. But here's the point that is relevant to our discussion. Dissociation resulted in a higher belief in everything. Those with tendencies toward more dissociation believed in paranormal concepts that really have, there's no physical evidence for whatsoever. Now that becomes increasingly important when we did an additional experiment where we got uh, images off the internet, for example, of a helicopter landing at night with the lights in a kind of funny angle. We had a, a kid in a Halloween costume, a gorilla Halloween costume, right? Well, the non-dissociated, people with low dissociation saw, well, I'm not sure what kind of aircraft it is, some kind of aircraft landing at night. They saw, oh, it's somebody in a Halloween costume, looks like a gorilla or a chimpanzee or something. The dissociated saw a UFO and they saw Bigfoot. And the point is this, these are perfectly normal people. These are not people who are in, in, in need of, 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 the, of the kind of psychiatric intervention that one might think. You know, if one's thinking about, oh, are people crazy? No, they're emphatically not crazy. These are normal human beings. But in a normal human being, dissociation can result not only in beliefs that generally would be considered bizarre, but in actually seeing these things. And this has enormous implications, for example, for the eyewitness realm, uh, and for that matter, for such things as scientific observation. So there are a number of techniques uh, that I have used over the years with people that have problems with dissociation. Um, but I'd like Dr. Sharps to talk a little bit about some ideas that he has just from the cognitive realm. And then I'll talk uh, about some ideas that I have from the clinical realm. Well, there's an interesting point there because there's been very little actual study of it. I mean, there's been quite a bit of study of associative processes from various angles, but not much hard cognitive experimentation. But we have discovered something pretty interesting that when uh, we induce a state in people where they are basically making dissociative responses, we had, for example, a situation in which we had, um, uh, how shall I put this? Um, there were a couple of spots in the sky that were actually a result of a camera malfunction, okay? And uh, we asked people, you know, are these you know, UFOs, et cetera? Well, if we start talking in terms of the supernatural, people are more likely to think these things are UFOs, okay? But that's if you ask the question, could this thing be a UFO? 
could these things be UFOs? And we start talking about how the desert, and we never lie to anybody. This is absolutely the truth because these deserts we were in were places that people reported these things. You know, there were very various mystical associations. When people were aware of those, there was more of a tendency for them to say, well, yeah, sure, that might be a UFO. But when you ask the question of, is one of these things possibly a reflection of the other one on the clouds above or some kind of light effect? We force them to engage in what we refer to as feature-intensive processing. We force them to start going, okay, well, now I have to start thinking. Could this be a reflection? Could this be on the clouds? Is it one object? Is it two objects? Could it be the shadow of another object? If it was, where would the light have to come from? And so on and so forth. That kind of technical question. What we discovered was that when people engage in that kind of feature-intensive processing, as opposed to the more gestalt processing of, yeah, sure, there might be UFOs up there. Okay? If we start, basically, if you start having, forcing people, so to speak, to count the rivets, people's beliefs become much more down-to-earth. Now, do we have a direct linkage there and dissociation? Well, what we do have is a direct linkage of the cognitive stylings typical of dissociation. And I do, for example, have a new paper that will be out in a couple of months where we did, in fact, show that dissociation is more likely to produce beliefs that are more likely to, for, to, to, to influence an individual to interpret environmental stimuli in ways that may not be supported by what they're actually seeing. So your friend in combating these kinds of things seems to be a feature-intensive very evidence-based way of thinking about the world, forcing yourself into that really, really almost an engineering perspective. Your enemy here is to take a sort of gestalt mythological possibility of, sure, Nessie might be out there, or sure, they might be UFOs up in the sky, you know, maybe, who knows, the Klingons might exist, okay? Um, there's no evidence, but when you start making a, a serious feature-intensive analysis of these things, you start to recognize, my gosh, how do I know what I think I know? What, what, what is really my evidence here? How do I really understand this? Now, that's a very difficult thing to do because lots of people have tremendous cognitive dissonance about beliefs that may not make much sense. They may not have anything to do with the UFOs or the Loch Ness Monster. It may have to do with your relationships, with your career, with, you know, people do engage in superstitious behavior. What might happen to me in the future? What kinds of things look like and look dangerous to me? Your friend in combating that kind of psychologically damaging thinking is a hard analysis of the features involved based on logic and evidence. I think uh, you have spoken about this in some of your lectures, and I've actually used this technique many, many, many times with uh, patients. You've often um, mentioned that looking at a watch can be helpful. Yeah, that's a technique that many clinicians, including yourself and other scientifically-based clinicians, uh, recommend. It's referred to as grounding, and we've seen a number of first responders report this as very, very useful to them. Uh, for example, um, in, in cases of genuine post-traumatic stress disorder, there can be a daytime intrusions where suddenly the person is perceptually and cognitively back in the traumatic situation, and it tends to produce uh, what we refer to as a positive feedback situation, you might also call it a cascade effect, where the negative responses, the negative emotionality produces a less realistic response, which produces in turn more emotionality, and off you go. Okay. Now, the technique of grounding, and this is not original with me, and it's not in much of the cognitive literature, I know most of this from talking to cognitively aware clinicians, is to use objects in the world around you 
to remove yourself from that, if you will, imagined or potentially dissociative environment. Now, for example, the watch I'm wearing right now is the kind of watch you might have as a field first responder. It's basically a black lump of digital digital, digital rubber that is more, it's not fireproof, but it's waterproof, dustproof, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if I were prone towards something like these daytime intrusions or sort of these sudden feelings of, oh my gosh, I'm back in, the, back, back in the jungle, back in wherever it is, I'd probably take that watch off and put on a nice dress watch. In fact, that you gave me is a, a nice silver boulevard that I wouldn't expose to those conditions. Because I could then look at that watch, and this is what the clinicians talk about, ground myself. And again, I'm not speaking here from the perspective of cognitive experimentation. I'm speaking from the clinical experience of other people. I'm not a clinician. But the point is, I'm looking at that watch and go, oh my goodness, yeah, that's not the watch I was wearing under, you know, it's such and such a horrible fire where this happened, or it's such and such an alley where my partner was killed, depending on what area of first response I was in. I'd never wear this watch, the one I'm wearing now, because it looks too much like a service watch. But that mighty stainless steel boulevard that I tend to just wear in my own laboratory where it's safe, I can look at that and go, that's not the watch I had. In fact, when did I get that? Oh, yeah, my wife gave that to me on the island of Kauai when we were on vacation. Then I can start remembering where you know, the park at Waimea Canyon, et cetera, et cetera. I can look at the date on my watch. Like today, it's the, the, it happens to be the 5th of November. The 5th of November, what year? Oh, my gosh. No, these horrible things happened. I'll make up a date here in 2007, 2008. It's 2022. This is long. My goodness, well, where am I now? Oh, I'm, I'm not at such and such a terrible fire. I'm not in such and such a stakeout situation or a hostage negotiation situation. I'm, you know, in my house or I'm going to be going fishing. Now, it's not just watches, okay? Aside from certain British army units that wear kilts, nobody wears a plaid thing in service. But lots of people wear a plaid shirt when they go fishing. And so here you are, you look down at your sleeve and it's not that deep blue or the dark green or whatever, khaki, whatever your service shirt is. It's this red and white plaid. Well, that doesn't look anything like your service situation. You Obviously, you're not on duty right now. That starts to get in your mind. Okay. Oh, yeah, this is the shirt I always wear fishing. Oh, yeah, now I remember going on that trip to whatever your lake, special lake or stream is, okay? Or if you don't fish, maybe you hunt or maybe you wear that, that, that plaid shirt when you go out in the woods to take photographs of birds or something. You can ground yourself in immediate reality and t- essentially take yourself out of what, yeah, I'm, I don't want to play fast and loose here because I can't say dissociative state. That hasn't been proven. But a state at least remarkably similar to dissociation where the world seems amorphous and dangerous, where you might literally be back in, in Iraq or Vietnam or wherever it is the horrible things happen, the, the alley in Cincinnati or the terrible fire up in the Sierras. This is the technique of grounding, and we can explain the cognitive ramifications of it. This is not the brainchild of cognitive people. It's the brainchild, again, of scientifically aware clinicians. I think that the first step clinically is to see if you are dissociating. So are you checking out of life? Are you feeling distanced from your own life? Do you feel numb when you look at the people that you love? Do you feel like you're watching your life on a TV screen. If so, then there's a couple things that you can begin to do immediately. One of them is you can, it's called mindfulness, begin to stay in the moment. And that includes grounding, which Dr. Sharps is just talking about. But you can also 
say things like, I am in this place, I am in this building, I am out in this wilderness, I am safe, everything is going well, and I am having a good time, or I am, you know, the air is clean, or whatever. So you're kind of doing a feature intensive analysis, basically, of your surroundings, and grounding yourself in your surroundings, doing some some breathing, and just stay in that moment and not allow your mind to wander anywhere else. The more you can do that, the more it seems to reduce dissociation. The more you get the stress reduced in your life, the more typically dissociation reduces. Remember, dissociation is a state that your mind uses to escape the realities of your world. So what is it you're escaping? Is it something from your past? Might be. Is it something right now? Could be. Is it a relationship? Is it a job? Is it you know, where you're stationed, I don't know, but begin to put the puzzle pieces together. As in all of the things that we talk about, you need to make a plan. You need to figure out what it is that is contributing to these different states and then start working towards bringing yourself back to being attached to your life. Because if you're not attached to your life, then you're probably not really thinking about the decisions you're making And you have the right to have a happy life. So that takes some thinking about how you're going to set that up. So you do have the right to have a happy life. I hope you choose that. And I hope when you listen to these different podcasts, you start making those day-to-day changes and keep them in front of you so that ultimately you wake up one morning and you feel good. Take care. This is MindPilot. Don't forget to subscribe. Thank you, Dr. Sharps. Thank you.